Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. And it's really hard to denounce the anti-intellectualism <laughs> of evangelicalism when your college education has been paid for in part by, you know, the very people you're decrying. It's very hard to say, oh, evangelicals don't care about life except in political ways when you have memories of appeals for diapers to support the local crisis pregnancy center that was just starting up. Emily Lund, welcome to this studio. Thank you. Have you ever been in the studio before? This is my first time sitting in here. I can give you the tour of it. No, you left this out. I left this out of the tour. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. I'm not bitter. Okay. So (laughs) not bitter about that. Uh, (laughs) Emily, uh, you're our editorial resident here at Christianity Today. That I am. And you do, you're like um, Jack of all trades. You do a a Jill of of all trades. A Jill of all, sorry. I apologize. It's Jill okay. of all trades. It's okay. <laughs> You're a Jill of all trades. You work for, what are the brands? I work for Church Law and Tax, uh-huh. and I work for Preaching Today, uh-huh. and I work for the local church. How long have you been here? I have been here since January. So you moved from from where to be here? I moved from the Pacific Northwest. And to, to be, be in here, Chicago. To land. be in Chicago in January. And you're in Wheaton. I'm in Wheaton. Do you like the weather? I'm starting to like it more. Yeah, it gets better in May. Yeah, yeah. I When I first got here, I was a little unsure about it. We have this cool thing in the back parking lot where it turns into a lake. Yeah, also that. That's pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Um, This has been... This has been insights from the editorial residents. We just talk about the weather. Have you ever heard of Matthew Lee Anderson? Is he that guy who's behind mere orthodoxy? He is. How did you know? How did I know? It's because everyone knows about Matthew Lee Anderson. Everyone. He co-founded or founded, I think. I just say co-founded by default because a lot of times when you call someone the founder of something, they correct you and say co-founder automatically. Oh, got it. Uh, but I actually think he's a founder. I think he's just a regular founder. I think he is. Of the M- Mere Orthodoxy. And he uh, wrote a book called The End of Our Exploring, a book about questioning and the confidence of faith. So he uh, also happens to be a church leader. He actually teaches Sunday school at his church. Oh, really? And we had a long conversation about uh, Sunday school teaching. About the classroom environment in churches. Okay. About the importance of intellectualism, or in particular, like putting ideas high on the shelf Mm. so that people have to work for them a little bit. Not like in Sunday school? In Sunday school. Okay. In the context of the local church. Yeah. So this, this is really interesting to me because I think there is a tendency for us to think people have to make things easily accessible for people, like as an end into itself. Hmm. Matt's perspective, Matthew's perspective. I don't know if he goes by Matt or not. I'm just kidding. We're buds. I'm calling him Matt. Call him Matt. Matt's perspective. He's been on your podcast. You can call him Matt. Lee's perspective is that. <laughs> Anderson's Mr. perspective. Mr. Anderson's perspective is that 
you actually lose something when you dumb things down in a way. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you're not dumbing things down like inherently. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talked about that, and we talked a bit about nature of evangelicalism. And uh, he's kind of a man on a mission. Very mm-hmm. interesting. And he's he's passionate, so passionate about ideas and passionate especially about his ideas, which which is fun. Yeah. Uh, so I enjoyed talking to him, and everyone can listen to him now after this uh, music plays. Are you from California? No. Okay. I would never claim California. That's okay. not true. I love California. You've lived there. I did for seven years of my life. Okay. Which is more than enough time for California to rub off on someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up actually in Western Washington. Okay. Uh, uh, a very small logging town. Wow. Like Twin Peaks. I don't know what Twin Peaks is. Why not? That's well, crazy. Well, so here's... <laughs> Here's what I know about Twin Peaks. Uh-huh. I live in Waco, Texas now, uh-huh. and we recently had a motorcycle gang shooting that happened at a Twin Peaks. Oh, I yeah, can't that's imagine. A different... Yeah, that's a very different Twin Peaks. <laughs> I that's right. Yeah, that's a different Twin Peaks. Yeah. Okay, so um, what's your favorite place you've lived? Because you live in Texas, California, and Washington. Those are very different. I have. I've also lived in... Oxford, England. Okay. For a few years. I've lived in St. Louis for five years. Okay. I was born in Canada. So I've been all over. Uh, I have a wide swath of options to choose from. I don't know that I would pick a favorite. I reject the question. Okay. Um, that's fair. I love them all differently for different <laughs> reasons. Um, uh, Southern California, Los Angeles gets a bad rap. Um, a lot of people don't like it because it's, so much concrete and so ugly and so on. I actually found myself by the time that I left quite entranced by the city and by the concrete and, and and somewhat enchanted by it. So I could, I could totally live in Southern California again. That would be very easy to do. Yeah. So now you live in Texas. I live in Waco, Texas. Yeah. And you're, are you going, what are you doing? What, what exactly do you do? Yeah. What are you doing? Right. So you, your name is Matthew Lee Anderson. If I someone am. is listening to this podcast without reading the title of it first, your name is Matthew Lee Anderson and you are known for probably most starting mere orthodoxy, right? I think so. Founding mere orthodoxy. Yes. Which is a website that, um, has in the past been known for rather link- lengthy. <laughs> this is the what I know it as. It's rather lengthy uh, essays that are also like the some of the few like four thousand word essays where you go, yeah, that was worth it. <laughs> um, oh, I appreciate that you think that it was worth it. Not everyone does. Yeah, um, it's it's funny that we're known as the place that does lengthy essays. I'm we just didn't speaking always from my that. own brain. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, lots of people agree with you. Okay. Um, but we didn't, we didn't always do that. I, that was a habit that I picked up the last, I don't know, three or four years that I wrote there. Sure. Um, because once you start writing long pieces, it's hard to stop. Yeah. You start thinking that you can't really say anything interesting in, you know, 500 words. Mm-hmm. And that's probably false. Okay. Um, that's a relief. Um, that's a relief. Um, I mean, I love Ross Douthat at the New York Times, and he manages to always say something interesting in 800 words. Yeah. He's just perfected that, that form. Right. Um, uh, I, I never had the time or the leisure mm-hmm. to perfect that form. Uh, and so I always... You would. never had the time to write less than 4,000 words. Right. Saying. Yeah, that's exactly right. That makes um, sense. It does make sense. Um, 
it's so much work to find a thought and to hone it with the kind of clarity and precision that you can dem- like, like present it in a compelling fashion in 800 words. Like yeah. it's a, it's a really hard skill. It's, and I think Ross has, Ross has mastered it. His columns, his columns now are better than when he started at the New York times. And, you know, as, as someone who's only done it as a hobby, I've never had to learn that skill. Mm-hmm. I've never, uh, forced myself to learn that skill. And so I, I, Went the other direction and wrote far too many words. So you left mere orthodoxy. I did. To do what? Well, um, that's a fine question. So I'm a doctoral candidate. Okay. Uh, in Christian ethics. Okay. Which is a great discipline. Uh, we get to judge people in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's a joke for those listening at home. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm a doctoral candidate in Christian ethics. And I, I mean, I left me orthodoxy so that I could focus on my dissertation. Uh, I could spend yeah. the time that I had been spending writing publicly, um, writing something that no one would read mm-hmm. because that's what dissertations do apparently. Sure. So yeah, so that was, that was the, the kind of main motivation. Cool. Uh, so do you, um, do you serve at your local church? I do. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you do? I teach Sunday school. Okay. Um, Which age group? Adults. Yeah. That's, it's just called adult Sunday school? Adult Sunday school. It's okay. adult education. Um, I uh, am one of a roster of teachers that, that we run through. Uh, and it's fun. I haven't, um, I haven't been doing it long. I've taught a lot before mm-hmm. in my life mm-hmm. so i've got experience in the classroom yeah um yeah but i you know teaching sunday school it's it's just a you have such a strange brew of people right uh, that are coming from so many different walks of life that um it's it's very unlike teaching in a university or uh-huh. um or in a sort of standard school setting uh, because you have people with a lot more experience of the world than you yeah. in the room. And sometimes they end up saying things that are more insightful than anything that you could have said, yeah. um, which also happens in a high school classroom uh, more often than, than people think. But, um, but the wealth of experience makes teaching uh, adult education really, really rewarding. Yeah. So, okay. So we've jumped ahead a little bit. That's my fault. But I want one thing that I ask in every, <laughs> How dare one, you? if every one of these, uh, podcast episodes is I start with the question, what do you consider to be your calling? Oh man. Mm-hmm. Um, running away. Um, That's fair. is that, is that a permissible? Uh, That's allowed. Um, no, it's a, it's a fine, it's a fine question. I don't think that I've got a very, uh, well-defined answer. Uh-huh. Um, I'm I'm interested and have always been interested in seeing the tradition in which I was raised, uh, the evangelical tradition. If that's a thing, if there is such a thing as that, can you say in in one word whether it is no, a thing? No, I can't say in one word whether it is a thing. So the answer is no. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a good, I only ask that question to frustrate you. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> um, uh, you know, whatever that, whatever that world is, I, I have been invested in helping it recover certain truths about the world that I, I think it has overlooked or forgotten mm-hmm. and, um, and recover those truths in a way that's, uh, aesthetically compelling and, intellectually demanding yeah even 
yeah. um, uh, to participate in the formation of the Christian heart and intellect mm-hmm. by helping people sort of understand the world around them in, in uh, a way that they might not otherwise. So yeah. all of my writing and work has been ordered by that. It, one reason I wanted to talk to you was it seems like within that f- context, within that goal, you acknowledge the local church as a major player, right? Does I try that seem to. Fair? Yeah. So you, there are a lot of writers who write sort of maybe abstractly, maybe not, maybe more concretely, but there's a lot of focus often on, uh, parachurch or, or parachurch organizations or quote unquote the church more broadly. Um, and not a lot often about organizations called the local church and, and what role they play in the lives of Christians and in sort of the cultural impact of Christianity and that sort of thing. Yeah. So where does that come from? What is, what motivates sort of that? I mean, I assume it's like part of your just base assumption, basic assumption, but where does it come from in general? Yeah. So some of it's tied to a frustration of how people think about and talk about what evangelicals are. It's very easy to treat them as an abstraction Mm -hmm. uh, and to have the, I think it was Joe Carter called it the other church problem. Um, right. So you bemoan and decry what all these evangelicals are doing. And when asked for evidence, you point to churches that are not your own, Mm -hmm. even though you're in an evangelical church. Um, I don't think that local churches are by any means perfect, but I think on the whole, they're actually pretty decent places and do uh, a a relatively decent job of pointing people to the truth of the gospel. And it's easy to forget that uh, in the midst of lots of abstractions and, um, and so on. And, you know, I, I think about my own upbringing in the church. I, I, I was raised in a, a, a Christian missionary Alliance church and, um, it was very sort of standard evangelical church in that, um, you know, we took communion once a month and, um, so on. And all the problems that people point to, uh, within the evangelical world, I'd look back on my church experience and I think, yeah, maybe, but it, like, I also remember, you know, people in my church helping pay for some of my college education. Right. And it's really hard to denounce the anti-intellectualism <laughs> of evangelicalism yeah. when your college education has been paid for in part by, yeah. you know, the very people you're decrying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard to say, oh, you know, evangelicals don't care about life except in political ways when you have memories of um, appeals for diapers Mm. to support the local crisis pregnancy center that was just starting up. Yeah. And you know, like that, I think, I don't think that my church was atypical in that respect. I think that that's actually generally the norm. Yeah. And, um, that gets forgotten and overlooked as we abstract away from that kind of context. That is my experience in the, in the South, which is a lot of cultural Christianity, even in the South where maybe half the people in the church aren't truly Christians. You, you know, you might guess that, but, um, but those churches do those things, those exact same things that you talk about where they do concrete things to help save lives, to help fund education, those things like, 
actually happen yeah organizationally. And, you know i've moved to waco yeah uh, over the last two years and so it's my first taste of mm-hmm. good southern cultural christianity and i understand what people are objecting to when they when they analyze that on the other hand you know i think well i've been asked i've been invited to church more in the last year yeah. than i have been ever in my entire life and you can frame that as a like bit of polite social decorum that people just do because they're cultural Christians. Or you can think, well, that's not actually a bad thing. Would you rather have people not inviting yeah. each other to church yeah. as a sort of formal matter? I'm not sure I would. Um, I think it's actually fine to invite everyone you meet to church <laughs> as a matter of course, because that's a polite thing to do. Some of those people that you invite might not have ever gone to church and might actually hear the gospel and get saved. So, um, if I want to pick my vices, um, asking, (laughs) asking, you know, people, the church is a matter of politeness is a fine vice to have. Right. Um, uh, and so like there are aspects to people's frustrations with the evangelical churches that I, I, I sympathize with and I understand. Um, I also think there are distortions that as the more we think about concrete experiences, the better, the better it gets. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the abstraction comes from? Is that, purely a role of like a result of politics or is it something else no i don't think it's purely a result of politics i mean evangelicalism whatever uh, uh counts as it has also existed in a a, a heavily saturated media space mm. whether that's books or radio or you know conferences you know all of magazines. these magazines yeah. to pick one of the worst features <laughs> those magazines it's the magazines that are the problem uh-huh there, there are all these sort of parachurch ways of gathering together that give it a diffuse shape that extends beyond the local church, and and it's easier to analyze it yeah. through those sorts of through those sorts of abstractions. And so, in one sense, I think uh, the abstractions come in because we've done it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we've uh, we've constituted ourselves around these forms of media consumption. Uh, rather than the local local church primarily mm. and and that has its own problems and has has generated its own sort of uh, byproducts that that have been not necessarily good yeah was there uh so when did you become interested in these concepts were you did you sort of always inter- were you always interested in these sort of concepts or was there a moment um or something in between i was not always interested okay um i mean when I went to college, I was committed to being a youth pastor, uh-huh. of all things. When were you saved? Um, in I, at middle school. Okay. Um, too late. My <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everyone who knew me would say, um, <laughs> uh, one lately born is a Paul's line. Uh-huh. One lately. Um, but the, you know, I was, I was aiming at entering vocational ministry i actually chose my college based on on that Mm -hmm. and when i got to college i ended up encountering a form of education that that changed or challenged a lot of my assumptions and that directed me on a on a very different course than i had been on and you know around that time this is back in 2000 to 2004 I watched a lot of my peers grow very frustrated with the evangelical world yeah. for lots of reasons we've all heard about. Yeah. And, and I also like just had this intuition that the, 
um, that the evangelicals today had forgotten something about their own roots. I mean, I grew up reading uh, guys like A.W. Tozer mm-hmm. and R.A. Torrey and Andrew Murray. I spent a lot of time in high school reading Andrew Murray devotionals. He had a huge impact on on my spiritual life in ways that were just great. Mm-hmm. I still will often pick up an Andrew Murray devotional. In Christ is one of the the just most wonderful devotional books that exist. And, you know, it's one of those little books that's in the, the Christian bookstores in the 99 cent bin, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that no one, no one generally reads. But mm-hmm. um, there are these sort of rich, rich treasures that had had a significant impact on me that I think had been wholly forgotten even by ourselves. Um, and so I wanted to participate in the kind of renewal of the movement that I saw happening around me. Uh, and, and it meant a renewal that tried to understand the movement better than uh, the people walking around did. Yeah. And someone like Fred Sanders at Biola um, uh, has done this that sort of project better than anyone. I mean, he's he's the sort of model and exemplar for me who I, right. I just try to imitate. What are you trying to imitate of his? Well, I mean, that, that sort of recovery project. Of yeah. those, so, I mean, uh, the best, one of the best books on evangelicalism, <clears throat> excuse me, that I've ever read was Fred's book, mm-hmm. um, which was not on evangelicalism proper. Mm-hmm. It's called the deep things of God, uh, which is uh, an introduction to the life of the Trinity. But the way that Fred structures it is by using distinctly evangelical sources like the cross and the switchblade, that mm-hmm. little volume yeah. uh, that was, you know, probably in every evangelical church library. Yeah. And, um, you know, what Fred does is he says, look, you know, David Wilkerson has a Trinitarian theology. It's Trinitarian life that animates the evangelical movement. I mean, he does a Trinitarian theology of Billy Graham's altar calls. Huh, um, yeah. And that that sort of careful, generous reading of this uh, weird phenomena that mm-hmm. is evangelicalism I just really appreciate it. It's the kind of generosity towards the movement that someone like N.T. Wright just doesn't demonstrate mm. in, in Surprise by Hope. He just has no patience because he hasn't read any of the, the sources. Right. He, he just has this sort of image of these evangelicals that he's talked to in his mind, and it ends up being a very flat understanding of, of what's gone on in this movement over time. Yeah. Was there ever a moment where you questioned sort of, uh, I guess, your beliefs? Was there ever a moment that you questioned evangelicalism or Christianity or anything like that? Yeah. So yes, all the time. Okay. Um, in one sense, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seriously been inclined to leave the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and I argued a lot for several years, uh, as he was sort of working his way out, out of the faith. Um, and, you know, I never, I never found the positions persuasive. Mm. Uh, I just couldn't be moved to to get there. What I, what I have been tempted to believe is just that God isn't good. Yeah. Um. That that I'm sort of not a member of the covenant people. Huh. Right. That's the strongest temptation. That he would reject you. Yeah. In particular. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. I think that's a more sensible position. <laughs> uh, a a, a right. more internally coherent position than walking away from it altogether. Okay. And I don't think that's a temptation that I've yielded to. Yeah. I think I'm a, a member of the covenant people of God. That's a relief. And, yeah. Um. You know, I'm. I've got signed and sealed in baptism to that I will point to you mm-hmm. if nothing else. Um, but I do have a, a sort of ongoing thought project about 
what it means to be an evangelical. And it is a, a, a sort of retrieval project and a potentially a redefinition project in some ways. But it seems, to, it seems like for you, a lot of these questions about Christianity are reasoned through. I try to make them so, yes. So that's, yeah, as opposed to felt or... People people who disagree with me don't think so. <laughs> uh-huh. What do you mean by that? Well, um... Like they think you're unreasonable. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, and, and anyone would who would disagree with me. I mean, we sure. don't like to think of ourselves as as reasonable but wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do want to say, yeah, I have... I, I try to reason through as many of my commitments as possible. I also try to feel as many of my commitments as possible. Right. Um, I, you know, one of, one of the most important lines for me over the last couple of years has been a line from Austin Farr. Anyone who does not pray his creeds does not deserve them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly right. I, I want to order my emotional life according to the things that I think are true. And I actually, actually also want to listen to uh, my emotional life and my feelings about the world and see whether or not they have gotten ahead of my reasons yeah, and whether or not things might be true because I feel them yeah. first. And so uh, there's a sort of give and take there. Yeah. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What's your, what is your relationship with the local church, like what has it been like over time? Have you, did you feel like you were isolated from it at any point or did, was there just like a steady sort of, uh, existence within it? Yeah. So I've always gone to church. Okay. Um, I've, I've been through periods where it's been harder mm-hmm. to go to church than other periods, but I don't know anyone who hasn't. Right. <laughs> um, so it's been it's been steady in that sense. Uh, at times, though, it, it has been conflicted. There are, you know, it's hard to find a good local church. Yeah, it can be very difficult. And when you're in a local church that you don't feel like you can wholly commit yourself to or resonate with in, in all the particulars, it can have a pervasive f- impact on your spiritual life mm-hmm. and and can create a kind of doubtfulness about uh, God and the world that. Um, that is really damaging. And so I take it very seriously. You know, I want to be able to, to, to find a local church that I can wholly endorse. And, and it's hard to, it's hard to do that. Yeah. What would you say to church leaders who want people like you to feel like they do resonate with what the church is doing? I think it's really hard because, because of the nature of Christianity and evangelicalism and faith communities in general, it's really hard to like lead 
those communities in a way that really pleases everyone. And beyond that, like makes everyone feel totally comfortable. Sure. So the one thing that I would say is that the way to, the way to reach the broadest swath of people mm-hmm. is not by setting the intellectual bar low, but by setting it high and by persuading everyone that they can rise to it. Mm-hmm. Not by being an intellectualist, but by presenting your sermons in a way that is challenging for everyone in the room, yeah. but it may be particularly challenging for the, 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 the most intellectually inclined people in the room, but still aesthetically compelling enough that those who are not ordered that way or don't dispose themselves that way mm-hmm. will still be interested in what you're saying. I think that's the hardest challenge that pastors have that like I, the, the one frustration, one of the main frustrations that I've had about working in the local church over the years is getting pegged as a smart guy. <laughs> it's just the worst, yeah. right? Like, Oh, that's Matt. You know, he needs to sort of go off to seminary or grad school and do his thing, but that's not what ordinary people think. I think, no, that's, that's actually backwards. When people are persuaded that the truth is worth pursuing, Mm -hmm. they'll go after it. They'll work hard to get there. When I taught high school, um, I resonated deeply with my students. I had great relationships with my students in part because I didn't set the bar low for them. I talked to them as though they were adults and advanced adults. And they felt like I had something that was worth giving to them Mm -hmm. that caused them to work hard, to want to work hard to give it. And so I think church communities that um, uh, try to win people by setting things on the lowest shelf actually get it backwards. They they will win more people by presenting uh, goods that are inaccessible Mm -hmm. in their sort of presentation, but beautiful and compelling that make people want to pursue them. Right. So when you're teaching in a local church context, what uh, does that look like? I mean, I'm talking about heavy theology. Yeah. In every, as much heavy theology as I can get. Are you getting specific on like the things that people might disagree with? Yeah. Soteriology and stuff? Absolutely. I mean, we'll go anywhere in a classroom and I want, and I, and I want to go anywhere in a, in a way that, that is actually rigorous mm-hmm. um, and that's that's subtle and sophisticated, but still compelling mm-hmm. and where that allows people to see that there's something at stake in these questions, that there's something that actually matters here. Yeah. Um, even if, even if they don't sort of come around to a settled position in that class themselves, they're going to think that's an important question. And I feel like I understand the question better mm-hmm. than I did before. What, if people don't agree, like what the what if, horrors, what if you share like a Calvinist view of soteriology and a guy's like, I don't agree with that. Tell me more about that. I mean, I, I do think that what the way, the way in which education works within the church shouldn't be monolithic. Yeah. Right. We should be pedagogical pluralists. Sure. The sermon does one thing and a classroom does another. And, you know, a membership class does a third thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, they all have separate functions and it's important to, to think through what they are. The classroom, the, the, the sort of adult education experience, mm-hmm. I think needs to be a, a, a way of digging out. And I'd say this is true of a lot of small groups too, a, a way of digging out what 
parishioners actually believe about the world. Yeah. And helping them articulate that and helping them question that better uh, and to wonder whether or not the things that they believe are true. Yeah. And in that context, doing so in such a way that it awakens and it evokes their love of the truth and their desire to understand the truth better. Right. And and gives them a kind of confidence that they can understand the truth better. Yeah. Do you, th- do you, so you mentioned like this could work in small groups too. Do you think of your sort of teaching Sunday school as the same thing as a small group? Or do you think, do you think there's something unique about that teaching sort of classroom environment that churches actually should be doing? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I haven't thought about it. I don't think my church does that. Like we have small groups and then we have sermon. Yeah. Those are kind of the big. Yeah. Sort of Sunday school as traditionally it's maybe fading. It's yeah. It's Um, not, it's trending down. Yeah. Trending down. Um, which probably means we should think hard about whether, whether uh, we want want it to trend up. Um, if it's a trend, if it's just a trend or whether we've got (laughs) reasons for it, as it were. Um, I mean, what happens? So your environment does structure how you encounter certain things, okay. right? A classroom is going to be a different experience than a home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say that things have to happen in a classroom because what I'm actually trying to do in a classroom is awaken real conversations, yeah. right? That would happen anywhere. Um, but I do think that what a classroom does is it communicates a kind of priority, a kind of uh, a sense of importance that yes, you know, yes, these, um, yes, we can talk, have these conversations anywhere mm-hmm. and they're important to embed within our entire lives. But we also think that they're so important that we're going to just dedicate some time of the church's life to, to the work of discovering what parishioners believe and helping them refine them and draw them closer to the truth yeah. uh, in this particular way. Um, by allowing them to talk back and argue and and think along with us, uh, and I so I think it's it's a good it's a good to have that sort of dedicated space and time for that as a part of the church's life, right? Even if it can also show up in other contexts. Are you involved in any small groups? I'm not. No, not at the moment. Okay, and okay. So, um, do you, do you view those as like important? I do. I have people that I meet with regularly that are small groups that are not organized sort of by the church. Yeah. So I run a Shakespeare reading group, for okay. instance, <laughs> yeah. um, that, that functions as a kind of Shakespeare small group. Yeah. Um, I uh, found a lot, like, I know this is not like good for every single part of church, but I found like a lot of value in common interest sort of meeting spaces. Yeah. So here's, here's one worry that I have about small groups. Uh-huh. Um, one thing that that seems to me to be at the heart of our contemporary emphasis on life groups, small groups, missional communities, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure you know all the names for them way better than I do, yeah. Um, is, but one of the things that seems to be at the heart of that are just fragmenting social ties more broadly. Right. So the decay of the traditional family or the, um, the distancing of families and extended families, you know, extended families spread out through, throughout all, all over the place or just broken family homes, the decay of clubs mm-hmm. and their role in American life, the sort of bullying alone problem. I 
think, I think what all of that has led to is a potentially consumptive vision of the church, right? Where the church is meant to stand in for Mm -hmm. all of these other social relationships and to like, you know, it's supposed to function as a family. It's supposed to function as a social gathering. It's supposed to do all of these things. And, Maybe, maybe it's the case that that's good. Yeah. Right. And you can say, well, that's what it was in Acts. And look at them. That's all immersive. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was just like one season yeah. of the church's life. And, um, the, uh, the vision of the church community that, that sucks everything else up into it is potentially setting up people for a kind of cynicism and and disappointment mm. that that the church isn't going to be able to um, play the role in people's lives that their traditional that their natural families would play. Yeah. Um, that we have a kind of over eminentized eschaton. We're like we're hoping that the church will provide yeah. the eschatological life for us in yeah. its fullness here and now. And I just I. I worry that that's not going to be the case. It's funny, like how much a difference a church, a local church can make in its, uh, congregations lives just by introducing another thing. Yeah. Like from two to three, from, from Sunday school and church to now we have small groups. Yep. And then now we have weekly dinners and that sort of thing. Like those are very good things, but it, Sometimes I wonder like what this is. I mean, who knows? This is a real question. Like, what is the cost of that? Yeah, they're, 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 they are good things. They're also resource consuming things. Yeah. It's, it takes a lot of work to pull off uh-huh. all of those things and it potentially narrows the church community mm. in certain ways, just not, not intentionally, but just by taking up so much time that church members aren't able to go do the things outside of the church yeah. as, as, as often or as much as they might be able to otherwise. Um, and so I, you know, I don't have principled thoughts about this. I'm not like running a Shakespeare reading group in opposition to this, right. you know, consumptive view of the church. Right. But I actually do think that, um, the church needs to support and sustain sort of ordinary lives for its mm-hmm. parishioners and to allow them to, to get involved in lots of things outside of the church. Um, a, a lot of your writing is about the church's involvement, not just in the world, but like toward the world. Yes. So that would be called like outreach, I guess, right? Or like missions or something. Yeah. So can can you talk a little bit about what you think about sort of standard outreach approaches compared to like what you think could be done better? Maybe something, what is changing in our culture that you think the church needs to be aware of that um, would change how we do missions or outreach? I mean, I I think the most significant change in... Our social lives, like in the life of American society, is the rise of singleness. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've thought about the way in which that structures outreach. Um, I mean, the, the, (laughs) the marriage sermon. Yeah. The series for a yeah. long time has been viewed as like the sermon series that gets people in the door. Right. Because everyone has marital problems and mm-hmm. they're wanting to figure out how to be married well. And so you advertise that like crazy. Yeah. And maybe that works in a white middle class neighborhood. Um, it's not obvious to me that that works in an inner city. And 
that it's going to work on in places where you have a lot of sort of millennial professionals mm -hmm. where people are not marrying at the same rate as they were before. Yeah. Um, so some of the, some of the changes in family life that our, our culture has seen, uh, I, I think we've been slow on the uptake to think about how that should restructure what our, what our outreach is. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I also, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. It seems like you're pretty open-minded to how the church does outreach. I mean, you talked at the beginning of this about things churches were doing for outreach, crisis pregnancy in our centers and so, so forth. Like those are valid. Yeah. Re reactions to a need. And as long as like the, it's, it seems kind of simple actually. I mean, the, if you think about it in that way. Yeah. I want, I want the church to, to, um, as the church to, figure out what the needs of its community are and to bear witness to the good news within those needs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. So someone came to our church, for instance, and, uh, from the local hospital community. Mm -hmm. And, um, they said that in Nashville, um, uh, one hospital system had done a study for why, uh, people were coming back after they had been in for relatively minor, uh, problems. Uh, and one of the things that they found was that people were lonely mm -hmm. and people were coming back to the hospital because they functionally wanted someone to talk to. And so they had started this program where they had partnered with churches it was a voluntary program because uh, of confidentiality and whatnot, but mm -hmm. uh, they had partnered with churches to give, give intermittent phone calls to people who had come into the hospital to make sure that they were taking their meds and to just chat with them for 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing actually drove down uh, the rates of return where people weren't coming back to the hospital system anymore, which freed mm. up more resources and so that sort of thing. And I think it's, it's a very churches are hubs of resources in that way. They're hubs of uh, volunteer energy and, and the church is not reducible mm -hmm. to that. But that's an important part of the way in which it bears witness. And so I, I think like there's lots of people who are far more qualified than I to talk about the ways in which the church can and should do that. But yeah. I, I do want and have always wanted a church that would um, be attentive to the needs of the people around it mm -hmm. and present a, a fully orbed account of what the Christian life is mm -hmm. um, that would remember the poor, that would um, value art and music and and that would announce the gospel in the midst of all of that um you write about politics sometimes <laughs> more than i should <laughs> so um i'm curious what you think the church's presence should be uh in a political season when this comes out it will still be the political season yeah we're recording this before trump has necessarily clinched the nomination <laughs> and he may or may not have We'll dodge Trump for now, but like it has raised this question of like what what involvement should we have in pushing candidates and what uh Pastor Freedom Sunday is coming up pretty soon when yeah. we're recording this. What um place do pastors have in speaking sort of actively for and against candidates and for and against policies? Yeah. So on the one hand you have the religious right, mm -hmm. so called. And the Jerry Falwell politicization of the church for all the good things that he did. That's one of the critiques against him. Mm -hmm. And what that's generated is a pastors who don't want to be Jerry Falwell 
and so think that they have no role pastorally in people's political lives. Mm. Voting is an act which requires discipleship the same way that any act requires discipleship and pastors who do not disciple their people in their political practices, abdicate their duty to disciple their people, to be Christian in all aspects of their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so paradoxically, the people, the pastors who are very averse to political formation, adverse to getting into that realm at all, because they are worried about becoming Jerry Falwell practice the same kind of separatism in yeah. fact, the same kind of fundamentalism that um, I bet a hundred dollars that, uh, with respect to other aspects of culture, they would rebel against. Mm-hmm. So, pastors have a role yeah. first and foremost. Um, I think their role is predominantly a negative role. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's much easier and more responsible, uh, and even more Christian. For a pastor to draw a box about what's permitted and to say that the gospel requires staying somewhere inside of the box. Hmm. And if someone's inside of the box, then, you know, there's no specific pushing. Like you can, as, as long as you've got multiple people in the box, you don't endorse positively, yeah. but you can make negative endorsements, right? You can say, I think that person or that idea is outside of the box mm-hmm. the role of the pastor in that realm is negative yeah. right it's 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 also like the way in which the church critiques the state when state actors do things you know the role of the role of the pastor is not to tell the, the state what to do necessarily um, because the church doesn't know the situation at the extent or the level that it needs to necessarily to say, yes, go do this. Mm-hmm. I think the primary role of this state of, of the church with respect to the state is to prohibit, mm-hmm. to say, here's what you cannot do. You cannot kill innocent civilians. Yeah. You cannot torture. You cannot, you know, uh, do all of these things mm-hmm. that you might be inclined to do. Now, what do you, what can you do? That may be on you to figure out, right? <laughs> like, right. like we're going to just, you know, hope that you're a prudential person who's well-formed, but all we can do uh, theologically or the primary thing that we can do theologically is say, here's what you ought not to. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that distinction gets overlooked a lot Uh in the church's witness. And I think a lot more pastors could be more courageous than they are uh, if they realized Mm -hmm. that uh, they can draw lines and say, beyond this, you shall not go without having to endorse positively necessarily. Yeah. Uh, your time uh, teaching Sunday school, what, uh, and, and just being involved in the local church in various ways, what has that done? How has that changed you as a person? Yeah. I, that's a good question. I, I feel like I am, I don't know. I'm just going to say, I don't know. That's cool. Um, yeah. I, I'd like to think, you, you know, these are hard questions because the only way that I'm going to answer that is positively, right? Yeah. I, I'm not going to say it's, it's made me more frustrated or more angry. I think or, that's fair. Um, I think people would like to hear that. Oh, well. But you would like to say it. <laughs> but, but when, yeah, that's right. Um, I've become more a sinner uh-huh. um, as a result. Um, no, I do think, I do think it's made me, 
more it's it's confirmed for me that uh, if you build it they will come if you if you huh. will if you will if you will work with people and talk with them mm. and reason with them and hold up these goods uh in a way that's that's compelling they'll they'll go with you they'll yeah. be interested they'll be, they'll want to learn more there's far more there's a far deeper hunger for rich robust education mm-hmm. and um and learning than i think pastors realize yeah um because people want to be taken seriously and mm-hmm. and they want to have their intellectual life be a, a source of of their love and um for their loves to be formed by their reason yeah. um that's just what they're made to do and if you can uh, awaken that kind of interest um they'll run with it yeah it's interesting you said it that way because i was going to point out like you talk about reason a lot i do and unlike a lot of pastors and church leaders you don't talk about love like a whole lot <laughs> which i don't think is wrong i'm it's just like an observation it's just interesting but you tie those two together very closely yeah i've never been able to to to, to see how they're necessarily different I, right. and i and i we reason about the things that we love i mean i i view reasoning as a kind of deliberation mm. right it's it's a way of entangling my whole life in this thing yeah um uh it doesn't have to be like syllogisms yeah right i'm just deliberating i'm contemplating i'm devoting my attention yeah to this sort of thing and and it's the kind of thing that even involves our bodies right the people some people want to say something like oh, talking about reason is means that you're you've got a disembodied approach to the world mm. and not at all the way in which our bodies determine what we are attentive to and reasoned about is really important. Partly the church, um, the early church was very attentive to and uh, reasoned extensively about death because everyone around them was dying. You had, Hmm. you know, uh, uh, a mortality rate of 35 in the early church Mm -hmm. and the constant presence of death made people very attentive to that. Um, And so I, you know, in one sense, like that, the, following our interests yeah. and following our hearts and reasoning about where they lead, uh-huh. I think is, is um, a fine practice for the church to do. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, last question. And this may relate to the question I just asked, which made you stumble a little bit. Oh no. But um, if you could tell your younger self one thing, uh, what would it be? Oh man. Some sort <laughs> oh, of advice. Man. Um, you don't have to publish right away. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you really don't. Uh-huh. You know, when I was uh, a decade ago, I've been writing for a decade. And How old are you now? Can I I'm ask? I'm 34. Them? Okay. So I've been writing for a decade, and there was uh, such a strong sense of urgency mm. that not only I had, but a lot of people around me had. And they encouraged... It, it wasn't like I just decided to to start writing. I was encouraged to do it and um, and encouraged out of, out of a sense of urgency. Like there's, you know, there's an opportunity here within, mm. um, within the world to do a very thoughtful, aesthetically compelling thing. And... Um, and I followed that and I, and I pressed publish on a lot and I, and I'm not sure that I allowed myself to have the formation and the development that I really needed, mm. uh, because of that. And so, um, I think there's, there's much more. I mean, that's a whole 
thing in and of itself that we could talk about is the the, the formation of writers mm. within the evangelical world. Yeah. But I think the urgency the urgency to put ourselves out there is is a significant problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I wish I had not done that. And it seems like it would apply to church leaders too, like young seminary graduates who are like, I got to do this now. Yeah. You don't have to accept the book contract. You really yeah. don't. You don't have to podcast your sermons. <laughs> right. Um, your life is going to be okay. And I get that I'm saying that as someone who's written and published two books. Yeah. And this is how good is, advice always comes yeah, from people that's who right. screwed up. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just think I've, I've always thought that my best years, uh-huh. my most valuable years should be the years of 50 and after. Huh. And I've, I actually have thought for a long time that I would write until I was 50. And then I would retreat and, and do the real work of being in a, in a, in a classroom and, and teaching undergraduates mm-hmm. and, and helping form souls, um, dialectically mm-hmm. and, and in conversation, um, which I think is where a lot of the real work happens. But I, I, this, this, this pressure on that people feel to get their words out there, mm. I think should just be resisted by the vast majority of us. Yeah. Um, the vast, vast majority of us. You've been listening to The Calling. Matthew Lee Anderson is the author of The End of Our Exploring, a book about questioning and the confidence of faith. He's also the founder of Mere Orthodoxy, which you can check out at mereorthodoxy.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt Lee Anderson, Matt with two T's. There's a pinned note at the top of his Twitter saying that basically he's not tweeting anymore. So to be honest, I'm not sure why he'd want to follow on Twitter. We just always like to say people's Twitter handles. Maybe he'll tweet again, again one day. I don't know. Remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us a lot. We're thinking about doing something nice for people who say things about our show on iTunes just because we want to. Uh, so you might want to go do that. And we'll start doing that maybe next week. Um, the Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere. Used under Creative Commons 4.0.